Hello and welcome to the Monday edition of the Upper Bowl GM podcast. My name is Nick Ferraris. Took a few days off last week. Was a little bit under the weather. My girlfriend was up to visit. Was busy. Put together a good list of guests for the show this week. Some good stuff that's going to be going up on Gotham SN where you can read all of my written work. Putting together something Rangers. I have two things Rangers. One is in the tank waiting to be edited and be published. The other is still in the planning stage, but should be up by middle of the week. Busy weekend in sports. This is going to be uh, catching up, making up ground, covering a lot of bases. Because we are in the great runs of the sports calendar. As a sports fan, this time of year is about as good as it gets, to be quite honest. You have March Madness wrapping up on Monday night, so I'm recording this. The Arizona-Stanford Women's National Championship just ended at the buzzer. Stanford won. We've got final, the men's tournament tomorrow. Baylor-Gonzaga, the two clear best teams in the regular season, meeting in the national title game, which hasn't happened in quite a while on the men's side of things. The best teams rarely end up meeting in the national title game because of just how much variance goes on in a 64-68 team single elimination tournament. There's a reason it's called March Madness, people. Very entertaining tournament. Uh, We're going to cover that, but we've got those to get us started off, get the month of April rolling. This week, coming up, Thursday morning, we get the Masters. Baseball started on Thursday of last week. Even though the Mets haven't played yet, they're going to get their season rolling tomorrow. Baseball started, so there's baseball on. We are a month out from the NBA playoffs and the NHL playoffs. We are three weeks away from the NFL draft. NASCAR and Formula One will be back this upcoming weekend. There's a whole lot going on. And boy, is shit about to start get interesting. In hockey and in basketball, we are going to see teams make runs, force their way into the playoff picture. We're going to see teams wilt under the pressure and fall out of playoff spots. In baseball, we're going to see who gets off to a hot start and starts to find their groove and becomes the team that defines the first half of the season. This is this is just about as good as it gets, man. I, I, I know I'm not the first person to make this point, but... Once we get through the Masters, we get baseball rolling, we've got hockey, we've got basketball, we've got auto racing. There's so much going on, and we just get to bask in it. As I'm recording this, I'm looking to my left. Sunday Night Baseball is about to start, and we're about to get watch Shohei Otani uh, pitch and hit for himself. First time that's happened in the American League in quite a long time. Very excited to see how his start goes. I'm very excited to see how the Angel season goes. If you listened to the season preview episode last week, I I talked with Chris Schweitzer quite a bit about the Angels because we both felt that they were a team capable of inserting itself into the playoff discussion, but it was going to be heavily reliant on Otani as a pitcher on top of being a plus hitter. So there's lots of interesting storylines to cover. Today will be hitting all the bases of the last few days, including last week when I was busy being sick with a stomach ache. Yes, I am a grown man, but yes, a stomach ache kind of had me weak for three and a half days. Less than ideal, less than ideal. But 
before I get to today's show, I do have to remind everyone to help grow. I got to put out more content. I understand. If I want more people to engage with it, I need to put out more content. More stuff coming this week. There will be videos. There will be blogs. There will be podcasts. There will be good guests on the show this week. Very much looking forward to giving you today's, this week's guest list. We've got some very entertaining people joining the show for a variety of things to talk about. It's going to be very fun. Wherever you're listening to this, if you're on Apple Podcasts, which a majority of listeners are, please hit the little subscribe button, leave a five-star review, leave a written review. All of that stuff helps a lot as a content creator. If you're on Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Audio, any other podcasting platform, please throw a little follow. That stuff helps me as a creator. It lets me know what people are engaging with, what type of stuff people want to hear. All of that stuff helps. As I said at the top of the intro, blog hopefully goes up tomorrow, as in Monday when you're listening to this. So today hopefully goes up, depending when an editor can get to it. And then we'll have something a little bit more in-depth during the week. Probably a strategy tactics video, because I've been watching a lot of... I've been re-watching some Rangers tape, trying to piece together why the offense can't create anything at 5-on-5. Five five. And I think I have a few answers as to why, and a few solutions to that problem. Alright. All of that said, I will see you guys on the other side of the drop. Gonzaga has time to do something. Suggs for the win. Oh, yes! Oh, yes! Unbelievable! Unbelievable! The perfect season remains on go! And with that, I'm going to start with baseball. Consumed quite a number of baseball games between Thursday and Sunday. Checked in on a number of teams that Thursday. I was very excited to see Jacob deGrom face off against Max Scherzer. Of course, that didn't happen. The Nationals are dealing with a pretty significant COVID outbreak. That entire series was scrapped. The Braves National Series, which was supposed to begin on Monday, will at least not begin until Tuesday at the very earliest. I know the Nationals signed Jonathan Lucroy, who's a catcher. So that would lead you to believe that they don't have a catcher on their major league roster they feel confident in going into a series. So at the very least, you know they're down two catchers. They're probably down more than that. From what I've heard, they have somewhere between 10 and 15 positive players. So it'd be pretty difficult for them to field the team. Baseball is being a lot more lenient with them than it was with the Marlins last year, where it kind of forced them to play with players from the alternate site who weren't really major league players. I know at one point the Marlins had played at least, I believe, 55 different players in the course of a 60-game season, which is pretty crazy considering how many players get into the typical season during a 162-game season. So far, it seems like baseball is going to be patient and let these things play out. I know a number of teams have aren't fully vaccinated yet, but a decent bit of their player base have been vaccinated. I know a few teams have had their union reps say some very open-ended statements about vaccination, that it's a personal choice, that it's not going to be something for the public, that each individual player will be able to make that decision without pressure from the union or its team. Now, let's talk a little bit about the baseball we did see over a number of days. The Yankees lost two out of three to the Blue Jays, which was an interesting series. I I, I watched the Yankees mostly the last three days because with no Mets to watch, I had to watch some baseball, obviously. Got to fill my void, like I said. 
Yankees, easy enough to get. Yes Network is on cable. Don't have to fire up the handy-dandy streaming service to watch the Yankees. Same problem they had last year. Situational hitting just wasn't there. They left a lot of guys in scoring position. I know that was particularly a problem on Thursday. I know the Yankee offense had a hard time on Sunday afternoon trying to score against the Jays. The Jays' offense is pretty well built. They got really nice play from a number of guys. Randall Gertruck always plays well against the Yankees. Vladdy Guerrero Jr. hit a home run. Marcus Simeon had a really nice series. Bo Bichette is a really solid shortstop. His bat, I, it's really, okay. I, I, the title on this section of my outline is Opening Day Weekend Overreactions because obviously you can't draw any final conclusions based off of three baseball games. Baseball is a marathon, not a sprint. No matter how much George Steinbrenner liked to equate the Yankee season with Ohio State football, 11 games and 162 games are not comparable. But the things I did see, Yankees offense struggled with situational hitting. The Tigers, I, I saw Miguel Cabrera hit a home run in the snow, but he slid into second base because he had no idea where the ball was and it went over the fence. And then that game became sunny all of a sudden, which was very interesting to see. Number of games checked in on. I watched quite a bit of the Padres, who have one of the best broadcast teams in baseball. Having Don Orsillo, who's one of the best play-by-play guys in all of baseball. He did the Red Sox on Nesson forever. The Red Sox and Nesson let him go. He's doing very well. as He's one of the best play-by-play guys in baseball for the Padres, where he manages to keep the game action part of the discussion, but also does a solid job of incorporating his play-by-play guy and also having a good flowing conversation throughout the course of the game without overshadowing the game, which is a really challenging thing for a number of broadcasters where I know a few teams in particular, their lead play-by-play guy has a bad habit of talking over the game. I know Matt Vaskersian has a bad habit of doing this on ESPN because for whatever reason, ESPN's producers have the play-by-play, the color person, the two color analysts, uh, they they have them in a never-ending conversation with lots of cuts uh, on the production side where the camera's constantly cutting the things around the stadium, and it turns into an open mic night situation where A-Rod is constantly cr- trying to crack jokes and overshadowing the baseball game instead of just letting the game breathe. That, I think, is the biggest and most important factor when it comes to a good baseball analyst on TV or radio is knowing when to let the game just breathe instead of talking over it. Saw the Dodgers have an interesting series with the Rockies. Dodgers scored a lot of runs. Kershaw had a decent outing on opening day. Lost. Trevor Bauer had a no-hitter going until the seventh inning on Saturday night and lost that. And the Dodgers ended up winning that game but gave up, I think, six, seven runs on Saturday night. The White Sox blew a game because of Tony LaRusso's bullpen management. The Phillies and Braves had a very entertaining three-game series, which was very chippy, very scrappy. Very entertaining. I, I think if everything shakes out right, the National League East is going to be the best division in baseball again. And you have to add the Mets into that. And the Marlins, like I've said a number of times, are no longer pushovers. They've got talent on their roster. They probably won't be as good as they were last year. But if the Marlins won 75-ish games, I wouldn't totally surprise anyone. They have the talent to be a decent team. Now, going into the first full week of the season, you get to see how things start to shake out. I know not everybody is going to consume as much baseball as I do, and that's part of the magic of this show, is 
because I consume as much baseball as I do, I can help fill in the blanks for those of you who are watching just your specific team. If you are one of my national fan friends, I'm checking in on the teams in the AL and the NL West because I am a night owl. I will stay up till 1 in the morning on a weeknight to watch the Padres, to watch the Dodgers. Yeah, I suppose I'm going to end up doing that for the Mariners at some point as well. That's just the nature of baseball. I, I struggle falling asleep early, throw on a baseball game in the background, doom scroll Twitter, come up with ideas for podcasts and blogs and videos, and... I really do enjoy late-night baseball. The vibe is better on Twitter. There's a lot fewer people not tweeting about baseball. It weeds out those who are really about baseball and those who just care about their team. This isn't to say I am of 17-team baseball Twitter, but I do just love watching baseball, man. It really is so enjoyable to watch. The last baseball topic I wanted to touch on before changing gears, of course... It was really nice to see Matt Harvey pitch well for the Baltimore Orioles on Saturday afternoon against the Red Sox. Look, I know the Red Sox are not a particularly talented team. I know it is one start in April, first start of the season. This is the time of year where pitchers, even math pitchers, uh, struggling pitchers, will have the advantage on hitters just because of the number of repetitions that go into getting to a groove as a hitter. All of that said, as qualifiers... Harvey hit 94 a couple of times, struck some guys out, was able to move his fastball around to get people out with it. Obviously, this isn't the same Matt Harvey that Met fans fell in love with a number of years ago who came in as one of the more electrifying players in baseball. Eight years ago now, nine years ago, Matt Harvey's Major League debut. I, I believe the 2013 season was his first 2012, that first year. The year the All-Star Game was at City Field. Matt Harvey really came onto the scene after a couple of starts in the previous fall as a September call-up. I will always regret how the Mets handled Harvey. They, He's obviously an individual who's had some struggles, both with his mental health and with some substance issues. It's pretty well known that the Mets did not have the best infrastructure in place to help players dealing with things. Even just if you're having a couple bad starts in a row and you don't have any underlying problems, the Mets didn't have anything in place to help guys out. And it really does feel like they let the ball drop with Harvey. I, I understand that physically he hasn't been the same in a while. That thoracic outlet surgery basically has that lost three four miles an hour off his fastball and he never learned how to pitch without the 97 98 mile an hour fastball and that that's four years now that 2017 season where he came back from the thoracic outlet surgery he couldn't hit 95 anymore and he couldn't pitch without that high fastball he just didn't know how to pitch and the Mets never did him any favors they never really helped iron out his stuff to get it to a place where he could pitch without that dominant high fastball. And I do worry a little bit that that's something they've done with Syndergaard, is they haven't taught him how to pitch effectively. They've only let him just pitch how he wants to, try and blow people away with that high fastball, not work on his off-speed stuff, not use his slider, which Syndergaard has an elite slider, one of the best wipeout sliders in all of baseball. And... This is not to draw parallels between Harvey and Syndergaard, but both have had significant injury histories, and I do worry ever so slightly that Syndergaard will end up getting in his own head, and 
baseball is such a mental game, and you can lose it. Guys, it happens all of the time in baseball, where someone will come up, they'll be electric, they'll suffer a serious injury, if it's an elbow, if it's a knee, if it's a forearm, what have you, a serious injury that you miss five to six months, a whole season. Some guys never get over the mental block of the damage that did, and they never have the confidence to fully go 100% again, and that's it. You, you lost it. The Matt Harvey of 2015, of 2013, that was just one of the most dominant pitchers in all of baseball, will never probably be seen again. That, that Matt Harvey does not exist anymore. Can Matt Harvey carve out a role for himself on the Baltimore Orioles as a number two or three starter on one of the five worst teams in baseball just to hang around the show another year? That's possible. I am rooting for Matt Harvey. I hope it goes well for him. It's not going to be an easy ride. Pitching in the American League East is no easy task if you are not uh, if you're not a great pitcher. This division can eat you up pretty quickly. The even the bad teams, even the teams like the Red Sox who didn't hit well opening weekend against the Orioles, that lineup is pretty talented. The the Red Sox are going to be able to score some runs when things go right. The Rays will score runs, the Yankees of course and the Blue Jays. I hope Matt Harvey does well. I don't have high hopes for him. I just want to see him stick around the league another year and maybe, maybe start to put together that late stage renaissance, late stage of his career renaissance that occasionally happens for pitchers after serious injuries. They learn how to pitch without velocity. The classic example, of course, is CC Sabathia, who, as he got older, he didn't wasn't able to hit 94, 95 anymore. He learned how to pitch with a 90, 91-mile-an-hour fastball. He reinvented himself. That is one of the great things about baseball. Talented pitchers can reinvent themselves as junk ball guys and pitch smartly instead of hard. I hope Matt Harvey does well. I hope the Orioles give him the help he needs. And, of course, I'm very excited to see the Mets play the Phillies Monday night. I wanted to put this lower down in the rundown, but I think everybody on the planet is still kind of jacked up from the Jalen Suggs 3 to win the semifinal between Gonzaga and UCLA on Saturday night. One of the most entertaining college basketball games I've ever watched. I'll be honest, I am a casual observer of college basketball. Usually watch somewhere in the ballpark of 10-ish, 15 maybe regular season college basketball games. And then I really dial in during the conference tournaments the week before the NCAA tournament to get an idea of how teams are looking going into the tournament to fill out my bracket with some accuracy. My brackets are all pretty much toast. Most of them had Gonzaga against Illinois, which obviously didn't happen. But Saturday night's game was absolutely tremendous. For UCLA, I forget who originally made the point. I want to say, I want to say it might have been Nick Wright from Fox Sports, who I hate to give credit to because he's kind of hacky. But I think it was him who said UCLA played a game good enough to beat every team in the tournament except for Gonzaga, which is true. UCLA, by all accounts, played well enough to beat Gonzaga. I still wonder if you gave Mick Cronin another chance with when his team got that rebound with 12 seconds left at the end of regulation, if he thinks about using his timeout 
drawing a set half-court play instead of letting his team rush up the court relatively in a slow-developing play, only to settle for a runner at the buzzer, maybe look for a little bit more of an organized play to go and try and win the game in regulation instead of going to overtime. Because for all intents and purposes, UCLA played a perfect basketball game in regulation, and playing a perfect basketball game in regulation against the best team in the country should have you a decent chance of winning the game, but you extend that variable, you give it the best team in the country five more minutes to try and beat you, and they will beat you. Now, that's not to say UCLA couldn't have won the game in overtime. Obviously, they could have. In fact, they probably should have gone to a second overtime, but upon a second, third, fourth, fifth, subsequent rewatch of the Jalen Sugshot, you see McCronin yelling at his guys to back up, to not let Gonzaga get close to the perimeter to force them to settle for a bad shot from 35-ish feet away, at least. I think if you gave McCronin another do-over, aside from calling a timeout at the end of regulation, he might be telling his guys to step up a little bit and try and force Suggs to take a little bit more of a difficult shot at the end of the first overtime. Incredible game from UCLA. Johnny Juzang played amazing, 29 points, 6 boards, 2 assists. Jimmy Yaquez, the forward, 19 points, 5 boards, 4 assists. Amazing, amazing game. UCLA played great team defense. One of the things that you do get an appreciation for in college basketball that you don't see a ton of in the NBA is team defense, meaning you see guys making aggressive switches on defense, giving quality help D, forcing guys in on who have the ball into a trap, forcing them to turn the ball over, or to force a jump ball situation, even though you get the possession arrow in college basketball instead of jump ball. You know what I mean when I say that. UCLA played amazing defense, held Gonzaga to only 33% from three. They out-rebounded Gonzaga, which you didn't see that much during the course of the regular season. UCLA played well enough to win, but of course, Gonzaga really does seem like a team of destiny this year. The number of chances they've had with Mark Few as the coach, they've gotten pretty far in the tournament a number of times. I think everybody and their mother still remembers the heartbreak city Gus Johnson call of Gonzaga losing with Adam Morrison way back when in 2005. College basketball is crazy like this. Gonzaga really does feel like a team of destiny. I'm very excited to see how the game tonight goes between them and Baylor. They were supposed to have a matchup in the regular season. Then Baylor had a COVID situation where they had a number of players test positive and weren't able to play in the regular season. I'm thoroughly excited for the game Monday night. Saturday night got me pretty damn juiced up for that. I I know the Baylor game, or the early game against Houston wasn't very exciting. Baylor blew them out, beat them by 20 points. I'm very excited for Monday night's game. I cannot wait to see if Gonzaga pulls off the perfect season. Very rare in college basketball for a team to go undefeated through the regular season and the tournament. Really quick, I do want to give a shout-out to the Arizona women's basketball coach, Adia Barnes, for giving me one of the great moments, one of the great coaching moments I think I've ever seen on television. Uh, She was in the huddle during the semifinal game against UConn on Friday night. Arizona was three-seed UConn, number one-seed UConn is the... If you're not familiar with women's college basketball, UConn to women's college basketball is what Alabama football is to college football. So the dramatic upset is the way I'll describe it. So 
Arizona ha- called timeout. They're on. I believe Arizona is on defense when Adia Barnes calls her timeout and she's talking to her players. And during the huddle, this is on TV. You can't really hear what she was saying, but she later clarified what she was saying in the press conference because someone asked her about it. But Coach Barnes threw up the double birds, the double middle fingers in the huddle in the context of her players, telling her players, if anybody doesn't believe in us, fuck everybody else. And I just think that's amazing, amazing messaging from a coach to their players to get your players fired up like that. Sorry that Coach Barnes ended up losing Sunday night. That was a really good game between Arizona and Stanford that came down to the last play of the game. I do think if you gave Arizona a mulligan, I think Coach Barnes probably would have called a timeout instead of settling for that desperation heave out of a triple team, which was a pretty tough last shot and still got back rim and almost came back. Tough, tough night. What Two nights should be an excellent game between Baylor and Gonzaga. Betting-wise, I'm probably going to lean Baylor and get the five-and-a-half-ish points just because that's a lot of points for a national title game. Usually these games are pretty close, if memory serves me right. I do go- I'm do. i going to do a little research. I'm going to send a few text messages. Like I always encourage people when I give any gambling advice on the Upper Bowl GM podcast, go look up other people's information. Go read some articles, listen to other podcasts. Be as informed a better as you possibly can before you waste your hard-earned American dollars. Now, I'm not the biggest golf guy in the world, but Masters Week, Masters Week gets the juices going. I watched a little bit of the Texas Valero Open over the weekend. It's not a ton. My girlfriend Katie doesn't like golf, so if I have golf on the TV, she's eagerly anticipating that going to another sport. It quickly became hockey after a couple of holes, but Justin Spieth won a tournament for the first time in 300-ish days. I know we just had the Masters this past fall because the normal April Masters last year got really hammered by the initial first waves of the pandemic. There were definitely no sports going on that first week of April last year when the Masters typically takes place. So it's going to be very nice to have the Masters. I know it was only a couple of months ago that we thought we might see Bryson DeChambeau try and uh, break Augusta National was, I think, the verbiage ESPN was going to use, that he was going to just try and outdrive the course, which obviously didn't happen. DeChambeau had a hard time even making the cut during that. I say this every single time I talk about golf, whether it's casually or here on the show, there have never been more quality players on the tour in recent memory, Spieth, Kepka, DeChambeau, Rory, Colin Morikawa, Ricky Fowler, Bubba Watson. There's so many quality players on the tour in today's game, and I didn't even mention Justin Thomas. I didn't mention um, I didn't mention Dustin Johnson. There's so many good players on the tour right now. So even if you're just a casual golf fan, you're like me where you only really watch the majors. The Masters is as good as it gets. I I know it's going to feel weird that Tiger isn't going to be there. I know Tiger brings a lot of eyes golf that are only casual observers people like me i know tiger tiger broke the sport of golf for a while where it was a weekly discussion on the talking head sports shows would you take the 
would you take Tiger or the field for this week's tour- tournament? And Tiger was the answer a lot of the time back then. And the Tiger size shadow will be real over this weekend. I know there are going to be people like me who wish Tiger was okay, wish Tiger was competing. Even if he didn't have that really bad car accident, there was a decent chance he wasn't going to play in this tournament because he had had back surgery again in the fall of this past, of 2020. And at this point in his career, those surgeries knock him out of athletic shape for five, six months at a pop, uh, five, six months at a time. So to be in shape for this week's Masters was going to be a tall order. I know there will be, Tiger will be missed this week. I'm very excited to watch the Masters to get up nice and early, a nice crisp 7.30 a.m. wake-up call to stream the Golf Channel on my laptop and try and find as much coverage as I can prior to it going live. I assume, yeah, Thursday is on ESPN, and then the weekend is on CBS. Thursday, Friday is ESPN. So hopefully ESPN Plus hooks it up like it did in the fall. Won't be too many issues with getting to watch as many groups as possible throughout the course of Thursday and Friday. And then I still can't get over that collective feeling the entire world had in April of 2019 when Tiger made that push and Tiger won the Masters for the first time in I think it was 10 years and just how genuinely happy and excited everyone was for Tiger that he had conquered his demons that he was physically able enough to play well enough to win a a major tournament again and Tiger's just so important to the sport of golf and it's a shame he's not going to be able to participate in this year's tournament but at the same time it's about tiger the person at this point how he gets to live his life is important how he gets to spend time with his kids we all know his son is pretty damn good at golf already for someone who's only nine ten years old Uh, there was that father-son tournament last summer which had a lot of people excited about the future of Tiger's one son playing golf, and I'm very excited is how I'll frame this. The Masters is as good as it gets when it comes to golf. The the course is iconic, and even though it's not going to be full capacity because of the pandemic, those roars, those roars are something I miss, and I cannot wait for everything to be entirely back to normal. So you can hear one of those icon. So you can hear one of those roars, absolute echoing roar on TV, where Jim Nance loses his mind because someone makes a ridiculous shot. That is something that it's very under the radar in terms of things you're missing in sports because of the pandemic. But the crowds at the Masters, it just means a little bit more. Not to go full SEC on you, but. It really does mean just a little bit more. Now that I've talked a little golf, time to go over to the association. Where it really does seem like the Nets might be the team of destiny on an incredible run. They haven't had a lot of Kevin Durant. Tyree Irving has missed a number of games. Where James Harden has been their most frequent player. James Harden has played more games as a Brooklyn Net than Kevin Durant, which is kind of crazy, but it is true. Go look it up. Coming into the season, I was pretty confident the Lakers were just going to run it back because they were so much better than everyone else. And then the Anthony Davis Achilles injury and the LeBron injury 
And there are legitimate questions now about the Lakers as far as where they're going to end up in the playoff seeding, which does matter to some degree. You don't want to end up being a 7 or 8 seed in the NBA this year because of those additional playing games. You don't want to have to play additional games if you don't have to. The Lakers need to make that 6 seed. And even then, if you are the 6 seed, you're looking at a first round matchup probably with the Clippers. And you'd have to go through the Clippers, you'd have to go through Denver, and you'd have to go through the Jazz to get to the finals alone. And... While I think a fully healthy Lakers team is better than all three of those opponents, there's just, you never know what's going to happen in a playoff series. The best team does not always win when it comes to the playoffs. Sometimes it really is about who's hotter. That is where it comes down to, especially in basketball, where one guy gets hot from the field for a few games, they go crazy, they can take over a series. Look at what Jamal Murray did in the bubble last year for Denver. That. Anybody is capable of doing Look at what Tyler Harrow did in the bubble from Miami. There are people saying the Heat shouldn't trade Tyler Harrow for James Harden because he was too important to the Heat long term. If you give the Heat a mulligan, the Heat are definitely trading Tyler Harrow, Duncan Robinson, and one other player to go get James Harden and put him with Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, and they're not going to hesitate with the benefit of hindsight. They're just not. LeBron is looking three to four more weeks Anthony Davis, the Lakers haven't given a timeline for. The Lakers have about a month to get it together, to tread water. They need to keep winning one out of three games, one out of four games, in the absence of LeBron and Anthony Davis in the meantime, just to not fall too far behind. Right now, the Lakers are in fourth in the West, but they're not that far ahead of the team behind them, and it's really important to not end up in those playing games that you would be if you were the 7 or 8 seed, which does matter. Uh, the Lakers' path to the finals is going to be a lot more difficult this year than it was last year. There will be travel, which matters. I am a little curious about the East, if anyone can give the Nets something resembling a fight. I know the Sixers have done a decent job of keeping the race for first in the East competitive, but head-to-head, I don't know. If the Sixers can score with the Nets, Embiid might go for 40, 20, and 5 every single game, and that still might not be enough, to be completely honest. They gotta find some shooting. They need to be able to score with Brooklyn, no matter how good their defense is. Because don't get me wrong, Philly plays really good perimeter defense, which matters. That really will help them. But they gotta be able to score with Brooklyn. Milwaukee, we know the limitations of the Giannis running back dive offense that the Bucks end up in in the playoffs. Year after year, we know the Bucks have had a hard time in the playoffs finding consistent offense when Giannis hasn't been able to score. I know they've locked up a number of guys. They feel pretty confident about that group, but until they beat a Brooklyn, until they beat a Philly, I, I just I don't have any expectations, really, is what I'll say. Circling back around, looking at the rest of the East, so... The Sixers are in first. The Nets are half a game behind them. Milwaukee is two back of them. Charlotte, yes, the Charlotte Hornets are in fourth. They are eight and a half games back of the Sixers. Miami is eight and a half back of the Sixers. The Atlanta Hawks are nine back of the Sixers. Your New York Knicks are nine and a half back. The Celtics are ten. The Indiana Pacers, eleven and a half. And then the Chicago Bulls, thirteen and a half. 
Yeah, there are five teams less than three games apart from each other in the standings. The Knicks have fluctuated between the fourth and, like, the seventh seed for a lot of the last few weeks. The Knicks will probably end up making the playoffs. At the very least, they'll make one of the playing games. I'm enjoying the Knicks. I don't have a ton of hope for them long-term for this season, at least. They need stars, obviously. They need the players they already have in-house to keep getting better. What you've seen from R.J. Barrett is nice. You want to see a little bit more. The Julius Randle jump is very real. He was a deserving All-Star. He's been a revelation. Thibs has been a good coach. The Knicks' defense is not as good as it was in the first half of the season. I do think it's fair to tie some of that defensive struggle to the absence of Mitchell Robinson, who has the foot injury. The Knicks are a whole lot better than I thought they would be. I would like to see them make the playoffs as one of the first six seeds, not be in the playing round, ideally. I think Charlotte will continue to fade without LaMelo Ball, who suffered that wrist injury, supposed to miss the rest of the season. But Charlotte's been good. Gordon Hayward has had a nice resurgent, nice comeback season down there. Miami has yet to really figure itself out post-bubble. They were one of the team that really played well in the bubble and just hasn't been consistent outside of it this season. They've dealt with a number of injuries this year. I really do think it's the Nets' title to lose at this point. I know I've said that about the Lakers about three or four times on the show during the, the 72-ish episodes I've recorded so far. Uh, both times I've had LeVance on and we've talked about the Lakers. We were both pretty confident in them as far as they, as long as they stayed healthy. Obviously, that hasn't happened. I'm not ready to write off the Lakers just yet. If LeBron is healthy, I, LeBron can do magical things with pretty mediocre teams. We've seen him a number of times in his career do pretty remarkable things with an average supporting cast. You need Anthony Davis, though. Achilles is a difficult injury to manage. It's not something he's going to immediately, the first day he's back in the lineup, be the same player he was. We'll see. A month out from the playoffs, LeBron hopefully back last week of April, somewhere in that ballpark, a couple games to get into a rhythm, go into the playoffs with a little bit of momentum. That stuff matters in basketball. The Lakers got to get healthy, and they got to get healthy quickly is really where I'm at in terms of them. In the East, I really think it's Brooklyn to lose. Philly I probably is the best potential Eastern Conference Finals matchup solely because of how good a defense they play. I think, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think if it comes down to it, I think Doc Rivers can out-coach out -coach Steve Nash. I, I know that's not really saying much considering Steve Nash is a first-time head coach, but he very well, very well could come down to the difference if that series were to go six, seven games where coaching decisions will matter when it comes to player usage, how those guys are going to hold up. I know they've been very delicate with the usage of Durant, of Kyrie this season, trying to get them to the playoffs healthy, if those guys end up in the James Harden situation where they have to cut down their bench, their rotation a little bit, I, did I say James Harden? Excuse me, I meant Chris Paul. The Chris Paul situation where the Rockets did a masterful job during the regular season of managing Chris Paul's minutes so he was effective during the regular season. And then when it came to the playoffs, the Rockets would have to shorten their bench, go down to about a not-eight-man rotation as opposed to a ten-man rotation. Chris Paul, couldn't his body couldn't handle that extra two, three minutes a night over the course of a series, and he kept tweaking hamstrings. Those soft, body, those soft tissue injuries, man, 
They're a real bitch. They're they're hard to manage in the postseason if you haven't been playing that number of minutes for an entire regular season. Yes, I know that sounds very obvious and straightforward, but you know that feeling you have when you've missed the gym a couple of days in a row and that first day back at the gym? Now imagine you're a professional athlete doing that, and you have to meet that high physical standard in a playoff situation. That is not going to be easy on your body. Is how I will wrap up the NBA segment of the episode. And for the final 5-10 minutes, I do want to talk a little bit of hockey because, like basketball, we're about a month left in the regular season, a month and 5-6 days. So the biggest story right now in hockey is the Vancouver Canucks, who have one of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks we have seen in any team in professional sports. This is more severe than what the Marlins endured last year. They originally thought they would be able to resume practicing Tuesday, as in tomorrow. That was Wednesday of last week, when they only had one positive test amongst the support staff. Now they are at 20 individuals, 14 of which are players, 6 are support staff. Basically, the Canucks do not have an NHL roster right now. They have... 15 guys, 14 guys on the co- in COVID protocol right now. That does not mean all of them are positive, of course. That does mean some of them are probably close contacts. But the way there has been wide community spread amongst the players means the Canucks are going to be on hiatus for quite a while. They have had an increase in positives for consecutive days, which means there was active spread over the course of a number of days. The Canucks had practice on... Tuesday or Monday of last week, and that is where the league believes the spread occurred. There was a positive test which wasn't caught until after practice. I believe it was Tyler Mott, the forward, who was the first player to go on the COVID-19 protocol list, and then subsequent players followed, and now it's pretty much the entire team. And that really does put the NHL's plans in bit of a pause, which obviously isn't the important part of this, that there's hockey going on. The important thing is that all of these players and their families, the support staff, the guys who go into making game days possible, the media relations, community relations, the equipment people, the training staff, all of those people's health is the most important thing when it comes to the Canucks outbreak. You cannot be worrying about hockey right now, and the league has kind of come off a little callous in there. Well, we're going to see if they can get their AHL guys in order and we can have them play some of the... The league insisting that the Canucks are going to play all 56 games as scheduled just seems a bit callous, a bit insensitive to a team that's dealing with very serious outbreak. It's reported that they are dealing with the Brazilian variant, which has reinfected people who have already been positive, which is an additional cause for concern because a number of players on the Canucks had already had COVID-19, but the fact that they were reinfected just shows you how dangerous the variants out there. There's the Brazilian variant, there's the South African variant, there's the British variant. It's an uncontrolled community spread. The virus is mutating, it's changing. It's concerning. The Canucks are in sixth place right now in that North Division. They are pretty well out of the mix for a playoff spot. That is not where this discussion is should be, but that is the discussion the NHL wants to have about finishing the season. 
I know on Saturday night during Hockey Night in Canada, during the headline segment of the first intermission, Elliot Friedman mentioned that the league was at least tentatively looking at bubble scenarios for the playoffs. The league does not want to do that. It wants to have playoff games in home arenas for the playoffs. But if the league feels it is too risky to do so, it may revisit the bubble formats, which worked perfectly last year. I, I was skeptical that the bubble formats would work, but it was very taxing on the players mentally and physically. It wasn't great. But there was no COVID-19 spread. There was not a single positive test amongst anyone in the bubble during that period of time. An ideal situation for the league. Probably not going to happen. The teams want to be able to sell limited tickets in the states that do allow, which is most now. There's only a handful of teams that still aren't allowed fans for indoor games, which is understandable. Always err on the side of caution. Listen to your local public health officials, that kind of thing. It remains to be seen if the Canucks are going to play again this regular season, which is a very real possibility that the Canucks just don't play again for the remainder of the season. That was another topic broached during that headline section of intermission during Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday. It's possible. The league does not want that to happen. It would like to play those games. Even if the Canucks are in a position to make a playoff spot, they still want those games played, probably because of television requirements to uh, for obligation number of games best, but still contract obligations, all that kind of nonsense. You know, the reasons why we had to play sports last year in the pandemic, that kind of thing. Just to talk a little bit of hockey, I know that was about four minutes on the Canucks, but before I get out of here, get you guys to your Monday, my quick top five power rankings teams in the NHL. Number one, Colorado Avalanche, not even close. The Avalanche are as dominant a regular season team we have seen in terms of results. They have not, they are not on the same course as the Tampa Bay Lightning were two years ago that won the President's Trophy and lost in the first round to Columbus. But they're damn close. Point the outright dominance. They are in the ballpark of sixty percent expected goals as a team, which is absurd. I, I just. Unreal lineup. They roll four quality lines. They have three strong defensive pairs. Kale McCarr is back from injury. He scored game-winning goal on Saturday night. He might, just might, play enough games to force his way back into the Norris Trophy discussion, which he was thoroughly dominating up until his injury as a Kale McCarr future holder for the Norris. I would hope he gets back in that mix. And he's got the numbers. It's just going to be how much do writers care that he only played about 40 games as opposed to the full 56 games. We'll see. Avalanche, definitely number one. That defense, man. If you have not watched the Colorado Avalanche game, take it upon yourself to go watch a game. Look how active their defensemen are. You're, they have Bowen Byron. They have Samuel Girard. Kale McCarr. So many talented defensemen on that back end from years of drafting well and really, really building thoughtfully. I mean, yeah, they went, Ryan Graves isn't as good as his numbers, but he's a quality defenseman. They traded for Devon Tays, who's really good for the Islanders the last two years. That defense is incredible. Their forwards are extremely talented as well. Miko Rantanen, Gabriel Landeskog, Nathan McKinnon, Nazem Kadri. Andre Burakovsky, Jonas Donskoy. There's talent up and down that lineup. 
everywhere, I would be very surprised if the Avs did not at least make the Western Conference Finals. Number two, Tampa Bay Lightning. Pretty much everything I just said about the Avalanche is true for Tampa Bay. The results in terms of expected goals and Corsi aren't as good as they were last year for Tampa, but that team is still pretty good. They've played this entire season without Nikita Kucherov, who we're assuming is being held out until the playoffs to avoid the salary cap issues. That activating him now would cause... Uh, the Blackhawks did it back in 2015, the year they won the Stanley Cup, where Patrick Kane was ready to go with about three weeks remaining in the regular season. They held him out till the playoffs when there is no salary cap. So I'm assuming that's what Tampa Bay is going to do with Kucherov. You drop Kucherov into that lineup. You're talking Kucherov, Stamkos, Anthony Sorelli. That Tampa team won the Stanley Cup last year. Blake Coleman... You go down that lineup more and more. Kalorn. There's so many talented players on that team. I would. Andre Vasilevsky is playing like a Vesna caliber goalie. He's got the most goals saved above expectation of anyone in the league. He's playing absolutely superb hockey in net, which really does help. It is an equalizer if you're playing more talented teams, even though Tampa Bay would not play anyone more talented than them on paper until a Stanley Cup final where you can make an argument that Colorado is more talented. Number three, the Vegas Golden Knights. I know they are on a three-game losing streak. I know the Minnesota Wild have played them extremely well this season, but that Vegas team plays such a strong possession game. They've got good defensive pairs. I know Alex Petrangelo has not been as good as advertised, I said that contract was bad when they signed him. I thought they overpaid. I thought Petrangelo was a depreciating asset. They probably should have just held on to Nate Schmidt instead, but they traded him to Vancouver. They signed Petrangelo in free agency. That team is as good as any when they are on their A game. That first line of Mark Stone, Chandler Stevenson, and Max Pacioretty is as good as any in the league. They do such a good job of maintaining control of the puck, even if they're not creating scoring chances. They're going to cycle you around the boards. They're going to involve their defensemen. Marc-Andre Fleury has played extremely well. I know he's been hurt as of late, but he's been top five in goals saved above expected for a majority of this season. He's been extremely impressive. A real, genuine, late-career renaissance, late-career resurgence, you should say. I mean, this is a team that traded for Robin Lehner at the trade deadline last year to form a tandem. Lehner stole the job from Marc-Andre Fleury, but Marc-Andre Fleury has legitimately taken it back with his play this season. Number four. This one might be a little controversial that I have them this high, but part of this is at least due to the fact their path to a Stanley Cup final is probably the easiest of any team in the top five of my power rankings, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I know I say that full well knowing they don't have a goalie, a, a true number one goalie right now. Freddie Anderson, who's been hurt most of the season. Campbell, their goalie they traded for from the Los Angeles Kings, has been injured most of the year. He's been playing hurt for a while, but when he's been in the lineup, he's been decent. They just have too much talent on paper for everyone else in that division, if I'm going to be honest with you. The only team in the North that I think could beat them in a seven-game series is Winnipeg, and Winnipeg's defense is pretty bad. Tampa Bay can control the puck on them, cycle, work the end boards. They've got enough high-end talent. I know Blake Wheeler's underlying numbers are awful this year. I think Jay Fresh Hockey tweeted he's got the worst 
expected goals for and against of any player in the league this year, which is pretty shocking for someone with a track record like Blake Wheeler. I'm watching the Leafs right now playing Calgary, who's been in quite a rut for a while, pretty much since I had that episode I did with Jess a couple of weeks ago where we talked about the Calgary Flames. The Flames have kind of... The, the new coach smell has worn off. They are not playing nearly as well as they first did when Sutter was hired. Circling back, though, the Leafs have amongst the highest ceilings of any team in the league because of their top six. If they can just get even average goaltending, they should be a shoe-in to make the final four teams. Uh, the playoff format's a little bit different this year. I'll be able to get into it a little bit more clearly once we have an understanding of who's going to make the playoffs, but from what I understand, it's going to be the four teams in each division are going to, it's going to be the one seed versus the four seed in each division. The two seed will play the three seed, and then the winner of each of those will play the other winner of the other one in their division, and that one team that emerges from that division will play in a reseeded against the highest seed left will play the lowest seed left of the four division survivors is what we'll call them so hypothetically if it were the leafs vegas the, the capitals and say the lightning you would have the, whichever team was the highest seed left if they were all number one seeds which seems unlikely that rarely happens in hockey. If there were the four number one seeds from each division left, you would sort them based on win percentage, I believe. But for all intents and purposes, don't bank on that happening because it rarely does. Last, my number five team, the New York Islanders. Yes, the very boring, low-event New York Islanders. They are still winning games without their captain, Anders Lee, who suffered a ACL injury. The trade deadline is rapidly approaching. We're 10 days exactly away from the trade deadline. Taylor Hall is still out there. There's a number of forwards out there. There's a few defensemen. Matthias Ekholm. There's a, quite a few defensemen out there. He's out there. Mark Savard is out there. The Devils might be shopping Sammy Votnin. Kyle Palmieri was pulled from the game today against the Washington Capitals and hopes of trading him just to make sure he doesn't get hurt in a game so the Devils wouldn't be stuck with him. It remains to be seen if anyone is going to make any moves. I wonder how aggressive teams are going to be. Uh, teams in the North Division, if they trade for a player who's playing in the United States currently, they will have to sit for at least seven days, produce negative COVID tests, then be cleared to join the team, then take a practice or two to get into a rhythm, and then play. The Islanders need to add another forward to their top six. Playing Leo Komarov on Mark Barzell's wing is Astonian is the word I'll use to describe it. Yeah, he can park himself in front of the net, but that's for the power play, not at even strength. They really, really need to give Mark Barzell a complimentary winger. He's too talented of a player to not be playing with high-end talent on his wings. You saw what he did on Friday night, that hat-trick he had against the Flyers. He's an incredibly talented hockey player. You can't be putting a fourth-line plug on his wing. So, quick recap. Number one, Colorado. Number two, Tampa Bay. Number three, the Vegas Golden Knights. Number four, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Number five, the New York Islanders. Those are my power rankings of the five teams I think are most likely to win the Stanley Cup. 
subject to change, the Islanders very quickly could drop out of there and someone else could rise up. I don't think it'll be anyone else from the East Division. If anything, I think it'd be either the Carolina Hurricanes or the Florida Panthers that could jump into that spot. And that will just about do it for today's show. A lot of sports to talk about, obviously. Tried to cover as many bases as humanly possible. I'm sure I missed something. But as far as episodes remaining this week, going to be talking Rangers with my friend Casey. That'll be tomorrow's episode. Going to be dipping back into the adventurous side of hockey Twitter. My friend Knox is going to join the show, and they are going to talk about what it's like being a hockey fan in an unconventional market. As a Nashville Predators fan, Knox is from what we people in the Northeast consider an untraditional hockey market. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the Predators and their mascot, who is an interesting mascot is the word I'll use to describe it. The presence they have Nash with on social media is interesting. And a whole lot more. And I'm going to try and touch base with my friend Mackenzie about the Minnesota Wild. We were supposed to record last week, but she had a meeting with an academic advisor come up out of nowhere. And our Wild talk was put on hiatus for a few days. I'm going to try and touch base and get that. And I'm cooking up something a little bit more serious in the pipeline, see if I can get someone from the expert side of the column to come join our conversation. Hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I will see you tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.